0: Movies entertain. Entertainment leads to emotions. Those emotions connect us to our enjoyment of film. And that is
1: why we exist. To focus more on the emotional connection than the technical merit.
0: Because every movie makes us feel something. Hello Gotham. This is your Dark Knight speaking. Welcome to Feel Film Podcast. I'm Batman.
1: <laughs> I'm <clears throat> I mean uh Aaron. I'm Aaron and here with me is my servant Alfred, or maybe my co host and best friend Patrick will have to
0: do. Hello, I I Master and I I, I want to say it, it's good to be here with you.
1: Outstanding that was can,
0: I, can yeah, I borrow the was car? That, was that, <laughs> that, it's just you can borrow the roll you can borrow the roll. I cannot do Michael kane I wish I could do him. He's just uh, it's just he's a tough impression. I'm still working on him.
1: He is. He definitely is. Well, today listeners kicks off what we think is going to be a super pun intended fun two month long dive into films that feature two of our favorite heroes. I guess I shouldn't even say two of our, like they are our two favorite heroes. They top, yeah. They're,
0: they're, they're top of the pyramid. Others yep. are, are maybe distant seconds and, and love, but these are the adored ones for us. They are.
1: We're doing our very own Batman v Superman event. Starting with two Nolan Trilogy films, which we have not covered yet, and Batman Mask of the Phantasm, we'll transition with some BVS action in The Dark Knight Returns, and then we'll wrap up with a trilogy of Superman movies, Superman 1 and 2, plus Man of Steel. So, get comfy in your favorite cape, and let's get started. Patrick, Batman Begins, here we go, one word takeaway.
0: I chose rich, and yes, that was somewhat of a pun towards the rich Bruce Wayne. But as I was watching it this time, Aaron, I realized just how rich in substance, rich in history, origin, in like almost like a refreshing take on the bat that we were getting when this movie came out. Uh, the last entry was Batman and Robin. Part of the Schumacher, campy Batman flavor, I guess you would call it. And this is probably the first time that we were getting a a fresh take on The Dark Knight. And we didn't know what we were getting. We didn't know what we didn't know, that we were going to get an outstanding second entry. And a divisive yet entertaining third, which we will definitely talk about next week. But when I watch Batman Begins, I really feel like it's probably my favorite take on Batman, even with some of the things that I don't quite align with in terms of my enjoyment. The overall movie experience and this first entry into the trilogy is probably one of the most solid in any trilogy of any kind. And this is coming from a guy who loves Superman. This is what I wish I had in my Superman world is a solid first entry. Now, there will arguably be some of that conversation in a few weeks when we start talking about Man of Steel and, of course, the original Superman. But when you watch Batman Begins, there is so much here that I didn't know about about him. And it was so well crafted into... A story that was both familiar and new. And I don't know that we get that a lot in superhero stories these days. Marvel is becoming famous for its origin stories, especially with phase one. And when you look at that and you kind of put it alongside Batman Begins, it's like comparing apples to oranges here. And it's not DC versus Marvel. It's really about how to craft. A superhero story in a world that feels very much grounded in the human condition. And I think this is what got me loving Christopher Nolan more than anything else. Of course, I love Memento, but to see him tackle a superhero and to see him tackle the Dark Knight and do so in a way that was very different from previous entries. I think really surprised me and it got me excited about what was to come and he didn't let me down. And so, yeah, rich was my one word takeaway. I assumed it was just about Bruce Wayne all the way. It's about him too. (laughs) The the flamboyance of Bruce Wayne too. Just overly rich being able to buy hotels at will, you know?
1: Yeah. I like that you mentioned that this came after the Schumacher movies because I don't even think about that personally very often when I rewatch this trilogy, because it's gotten kind of older now. I mean, we're ten, almost fifteen years removed from the whole thing, and we tend to forget because of what Marvel has done and what DC has done after that. Prior to this, it wasn't, it wasn't coming on the heels of something that was like it. It was truly a complete and utter divergence from the style of films we'd had up until that point. Um, we'll get into that, of course. My one word takeaway was patience. And I don't have a ton to say here, but what makes this movie incredible to me amongst a million other reasons is that no one had the patience to spend so much of it building up the history of Bruce Wayne. It takes just shy of an hour before we even see a bat suit for the first time. And that's on a stand where he's spray painting it. It takes quite a bit longer before we actually see proper Batman in action. And we spend so much time getting to know the man behind the mask, Bruce Wayne. We get to know about his relationships. We get to see the city of Gotham defined for us in a very thorough way and in a way that is going to not only end up making this a better origin story for Batman, but makes this a better trilogy because we have context for this Gotham and we have seen it all the way down to its grimy streets. We don't just hear about it. We we live in it, and we live in it multiple times in multiple ways. And I think that the trilogy is so much better off because of that and because of that tone setting. And it really does elevate this entry specifically as far as an origin story goes, because you typically don't get this. You get a pretty quick as you can run into being a superhero because that's what people want to see. They don't care about all of the stuff that happens up until the person gets there. It's fun. It's fine. We want to see the superhero do superhero things and Nolan go takes this long. He he takes his time, makes it happen through patience. And I really, really appreciate that. Uh, And it's been a big reason why I've grown to just adore this one more and more every time I rewatch it. All right, spoiler warning, if you have not seen Batman Begins or this trilogy, don't know where you've been living or what's been up, but hey, you know, no time like the present. Go check out this film and the other two films, because next week we'll be talking about The Dark Knight Rises, and you can also find our episode on The Dark Knight back in our feed. We did it during our very first ever Nolan month, I think so that would be like, what, January of 2016 or... 2017 I don't I don't know time is yeah classical. it was
0: it was it was one of the first 50 yeah. episodes that we did so it, yeah. it was a while ago
1: well whatever year it was it was January of 16 or 15 or 16 or 17 one of the two uh, that we did that so you can find the episode on the dark night there uh, so we skip it over doing that again but anyway go check out these episodes and then sorry go check out the movies and then you can listen to all of these origin stories this ties into what you were saying there in your one word takeaway. In 2020, most fans have a love-hate relationship with them because of what we've seen in the superhero emergence and just the multiple films in the superhero genre that we tend to get every year now. But in 2005, when this film was being made and released... Writer David S. Goyer and Christopher Nolan wanted to tackle a gap in Batman's history that had only previously really been addressed widely in the Batman Year One story. And even then, the Batman Year One story, which is one of my favorites, by the way, is, gets its start with Bruce Wayne returning to Gotham. And it's kind of centered on him coming back after having trained and what those first months were like. And while that's a part of this film, obviously, it starts even before that and shows us his exile, or not exile, I guess, self-imposed exile, essentially, and his training that he took before becoming uh, Batman when he returns. So I wondered, for you, I absolutely love it, and I kind of mentioned that with my one word takeaway of patience, but how did the choice to start this film with Bruce's life after his parents' death... And before he becomes Batman that, that really hone in on that gap of time, differ from other iterations and enhance setting up his character for the trilogy.
0: What I love about this movie and particularly that first hour, which is probably. If I had to break it down into its tabs, there are parts about the first hour that I think are far superior to the second. And for me, it's the same reason of why I love Joker so much, because it was about the man and not about the character. This was a story, is a story about Bruce Wayne, more so than it is about Batman, or at least it's equal to. And something that I've enjoyed about DC is the fact that they elevate the alter egos of their superheroes to the level of the superhero. So Bruce Wayne is just as important as Batman. Clark Kent is just as important as Superman. And when you can tell stories that have that kind of balance, it makes it a lot more interesting and a lot more appealing because watching Tim Burton's 89 Batman, which I really do enjoy, I always wait and get excited about seeing Batman what christopher nolan and goyer do is they do that slow burn that patience of their storytelling that allow you to get inside the head inside the motivation of bruce and allow you to ask the questions why is he doing what he's doing is it beyond just his parents being murdered what deeper trauma exists here and they start to attach him to other characters raza ghul and Alfred and just all these other supplementary characters that become important to him and part of his journey. But it's always about Bruce and how Batman fits into that. Even though Rachel at the end says the mask you wear is Bruce Wayne, which is true, but it doesn't make Bruce any less important. He's not a byproduct in this story about the rise of batman and i think that's what makes this really appealing to me is because it shows us a superhero that's not just that just like when we see thanos in infinity war the whole movie is really about him it's about the about the villain and it gives us sympathy for him when we watch batman begins play out that first hour gives us so much context And it does it in a way that's incredibly entertaining. There's some amazing choreography and cinematography embedded through here. We get a philosophical debate and the beginnings of what is familiar, but told in a really refreshing way. And so I absolutely loved the stuff in the first hour. It's it wasn't an origin story. It was a. It was an origin story, but for me, it was more of a, an opportunity to understand the whole character of Batman Bruce Wayne instead of just saying, yep, parents were killed, Pearl's on the ground, he's going after the bad guy, revenge is what drives him. No. It's not just that there's more to it. And we get that in that first hour, which makes it really, really good and helps it bleed into that second hour where things really get crazy and amped up.
1: Yeah, I agree. And I think that, you know, having seen his parents die so many times with the pearls falling to the floor and then him as a boy and we flash forward to now he's Batman. It's just so different. It's really refreshing. And I, and I think when you know you're going to be making three movies, it helps because you're allowing yourself the time for Bruce Wayne to go through this long game of character development. There are scenes in this movie where Christian Bale looks like a complete dork and does not resemble the confident playboy Bruce Wayne. That he even does at points in this film. There's a moment where he is like a boy with water like running down his face. And just completely scared and wimpy looking. When he's, I think, talking to Rachel at one point. And then later in the film, it's nothing like the persona he's developed by the time he ends up interacting with Roz at his mansion right before it burns down. When he confidently tells all his guests to leave and, and acts like he's drunk in order to get them... To go away. And so we get to see that happen. And if you don't take the time to build that out, you don't see him beating people up, then going to train with Roz and getting himself beat up and realizing that there are these levels that he has to progress through. It's not just hearing, oh, yes, I went off and trained for five years and I came back and now I know all of these martial arts because I went through the trials and tribulations. We witness them. I think little details like the fact of him talking about how he wanted to study the mind of the criminal to understand what they did and then just getting a shot that shows us that the things that he quote unquote stole were actually from Wayne Enterprises. So even while he was being a criminal to experience the highs that came with that and try to understand the mind of why people would do these things. Even then, he wasn't actually acting as a criminal. He was stealing from himself. So it wasn't hurting himself in the long run. And I just find that sort of like deep dive fascinating. And you mentioned the psychology. It does. With everything with Ra's al Ghul, which we'll go into more detail with. But you get to learn more about the symbol, right? The the creation of the bat and why it exists. This is something that in so many movies would just be a line of dialogue, Patrick. It would be like, yes, the bat was created to be a symbol of fear. And and it would be left at that, at face value. And we'd be like, okay, cool. That tells us what it is, but we see it. We see it take hold in the character and grow. And we watch him experience levels of that symbol becoming more and more powerful and driving him to innovate and driving him to go a little further and to push harder with that um and i just i love that and you know i don't know that i've ever heard someone say in a batman movie bruce wayne mentioned that the reason he picked a bat is because he's terrified of them i thought that was a fantastic touch uh as well i was like man that's that's awful like i'm terrified of snakes i would never be snake man there's just that's not happening. Um, but i but i love it i love the relationship with rachel and the way in which we get to see that he has this girl that is worth losing that he's risking something that actually matters we get to see multiple scenes of him with his parents when they're alive ways in which they influenced him going forward i mean there's a whole running theme throughout the film of what do we do when we fall bruce we pick ourselves back up right and that whole lesson gets repeated and getting to see it happen is so impactful. And so it's just everything about it to me is perfectly done. Like you said, that first hour is incredible and it never loses its power for me uh, and its impact. Let's talk about the villains. So the film features two of Batman's longtime villains that are actually not as widely known in his rogue gallery. So I wondered what you thought about that. Like what were, what are the strengths of this approach by having the main crime plot of this film focus on scarecrow as sort of a supporting character villain along with Gotham's crime Lord, Carmine Falcone and then have that bookended by Bruce's relationship with his mentor, Razal Ghul, and this very much deeper plotline of the League of Shadows, uh, wanting to destroy Gotham, which is usually explored in a much longer form storytelling, kind of like, you know, the series Arrow or the series Flash. Like that's where something like the League of Shadows tends to get dealt with or in long comic book series. But, here we get these two characters and their influence on Bruce and did you appreciate that or did that do you think it held anything back from this film because it wasn't joker or the riddler or somebody that was you know catwoman right off the bat
0: i saw batman begins as a test bed to see if your audience would take villains seriously and i think when you add raza ghoul as a bookend character he is a realistic character to an extent, you know, relatively speaking. I mean, we're talking about suspending your disbelief for this league of shadows that exists, but put up against a mob Lord, which I think is probably one of the best names for a a mob boss Falcone. I love that name, by the way. And then you support that with a character like Scarecrow with a psychological edge to him. I think it, definitely amplifies this grounded vantage point that Nolan and company are trying to go for. If you had started with either Scarecrow or Riddler or someone that's kind of bombastic, even the Joker to an extent, you would probably run the risk of getting a little bit more, not campy, but a little bit more supernatural, a little bit more out there in terms of your storytelling. and. I think that that Nolan and Goyer double down on if we're going to ground Bruce Wayne and make him approachable, believable, connectable, we need to do the same thing for his rival or his foil. And I think that's where Raza Gul comes in. And why he's not in the movie a ton, why he's in at the beginning and in at the end, everything is kind of shaped around that relationship and about the conflict that both of those guys have. And it starts with Bruce saving his life and thinking that he's actually done a good thing when in actuality, he's proven to Roz that he's not that kind of material. He's not going to be what the League of Shadows needs. But he is what Gotham City needs. And that's where the conflict just gets really, really great. Is that both of these characters, Roz and Batman or Bruce, they want to correct something. Where Bruce wants to save Gotham, Roz and the League, they want to save Gotham too. But really, they want to reset it. They want to wipe the slate clean. And as he said in that conversation with Bruce and his in Wayne Manor, they've done this before. And I love I love 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 that there is historical events that they pull from. They say, Yeah, we were there in London when it burned. We were there. That was us. But when you add characters like Scarecrow and Falcone, I think that helps push the story along. And I really do believe this was a test bed to say Could we do the same thing for a well-known character like the Joker? Which I think the stinger at the end is really powerful because we're not getting Jack Nicholson. We're not getting a crazy like loon that we're used to in comic books. We're going to get Heath Ledger, someone who is equally as scary as Batman on a realistic level, on a psychological level. And I think if you didn't add the... Characters or have that kind of relationship with Roz and then eventually with Falcone and Scarecrow You wouldn't necessarily feel like the performance that Ledger gives in the Dark Knight is as powerful because you don't have that Template you don't have that basis set up and Batman Begins So I think for for my money the other thing that it does is it takes characters that aren't quite familiar to a mainstream audience and it allows them to really just enjoy it because if joker showed up who would we compare him to jack nicholson because that's the last known joker that we know if the riddler came in or if any of these other Catwoman or penguin these these characters that are part of batman's rogue gallery in nolan's world in nolan's bat universe bat they don't fit just yet because We're getting to know Bruce and we're establishing a baseline of what Bruce and Gotham are about. If you brought in Joker, it wouldn't make sense to me. But bringing it in at the end as a stinger, I think makes it even better because now we're set up with a different kind of mindset. And we're like, wow, okay, if this is the Batman we're getting, I can't wait to see who we're getting for the Joker. Yeah. And I mean, that's the whole point of the second
1: movie is that Batman is creating Joker and Joker exists because Batman exists and their, their relationship is symbiotic and you're right. You can't just have a Joker and the Joker exists the way the Joker is because there's a Batman there to chase and always try to come against him. And it wouldn't fit at all. And and it establishes that and it wouldn't work without this baseline. I, I love it because first of all, Bruce, Learns about being Batman from Roz, and that is comic accurate and rarely handled in the movies like this. It's just like, oh, Bruce Wayne learned all of these things, and he's Batman, and he has these tools at his disposal. But we actually get to see how someone, while deceiving him, taught him about deceit without him knowing it, taught him about the- theatricality. One of my favorite lines in the whole movie is at the end when Roz is about to go on with the the monorail to take the water thing evaporate evaporator to Wayne Tower. And he looks at Bruce and he's like, he's like, you took my uh, my suggestion about theatricality a bit literally. (laughs) And it's just it's hilarious because he's like, okay, you know, I I wanted you to go hard, but man, you really went hard. Uh, and, And so he learns these things, right? And the one thing that Roz tries to teach him about that he can't get a hold of is the vengeance aspect. There's an element of it, but they differ on how they feel that vengeance should be handled, whether it's justice or whether it's putting someone down. And so having your teacher kind of turn on you at the end is a great narrative trick to make this super entertaining. And I don't think that the Scarecrow holds up as a singular villain. And so I think the way that he is used here, he perfectly amplifies something that Roz is already trying to teach Bruce about. He tells Bruce, he's like, you feel your own anger. You fear your own anger and that you have the power to do great or terrible things. He says, men fear most what they cannot see. And so there's this idea about fear that Roz is planting in the very beginning. And so what better character to amplify that than the one that literally has his entire persona built on a fear toxin, right? And so he interjects that and he also feels very grounded. I think he works great with the whole crime boss subplot here. And that's another thing, Patrick. I think that because Nolan wanted to ground this trilogy and make it feel almost realistic, in a sense, almost like this could be real-world scenarios, you have to deal with the mob crime that is happening in Gotham City in a tangible way and in a way that makes sense. And they do that here, right? And, of course, that leads perfectly with... The League of Shadows who want to eradicate that, talking about how we've infiltrated every level of your government. And so these are villains that fit in this grounded world, basically, like you said. Penguin doesn't make sense. A man, you know, it just doesn't fit in that way. Not yet. It wouldn't. And so I love it, man. I think it is an awesome companionship of villains. I think they go so well together. And through the scarecrow's use of fear it it helps bruce to become to a place where he can overcome that and i don't think without doing that early in his time i mean he's beaten by scarecrow patrick he's beaten by scarecrow and Agul in this movie that's the other thing like he is made out to very much be not perfect <laughs> i guess like raz kicks his butt Early on. And yes, he saves him at the end of their final fight there, at the beginning of the movie. But then Scarecrow I mean, Scarecrow whoops him bad. He zaps him with the fear toxin, sets him on fire, and kicks him. And like, Bruce goes diving out of a window, right? Ends up in bed for several days, having to get an antitoxin to get it out of his system. Like, he is severely whooped by this dude who is nothing but a mask and a little aerosol can. Okay? Like, that's legit and i loved that because it made me feel like my batman wasn't an alien like he was super powered uh wasn't sorry wasn't super powered that he had to do it with his hands and his wits and he had to learn from his opponents and adapt and that's what i love about batman
0: well and that's the thing that nolan does with with his crew is he amplifies the detective side of of batman that batman is always been a detective first and a superhero second so to see how bruce tries and fails tries and fails succeeds fails succeeds succeeds fails fails it really does allow him the opportunity for vulnerability which i think is a consistent through line with all the villains that we see in this series is every villain challenges him in a unique way it challenges him in a way that either challenges his morality his philosophy his physicality his psychology in different ways and what's what's great about this trilogy as a whole is that by the time we get to the dark knight rises we're getting into kind of crazy visuals and crazy kind of of almost supernatural type things that would make sense in a Tim Burton movie to start out with, or even in a Schumacher without the camp, but we wouldn't be able to get there had we not established that early on. So we have grounded characters that help push Bruce to eventually become the Batman and it bleeds into the other two entries in a way that feels very natural. And I think that that's something that's difficult to do. And I think that's what, The Batman movies from the 80s through the 90s really chose not to do. They chose to stay away from continuity and really just say, here's Batman. What kind of take do you want to have on him? And the only common ground is Alfred, you know, that that actor. So I think. To have an established story in three parts was so beneficial, but you had to set it up in a way that gave your audience a chance to say, okay, I'll believe this. And and I think no one did it.
1: Yeah, this is where I feel like it's so important if you're gonna do something like this and your goal is to have a trilogy, if that's what you're setting out to do, you really have to have this mapped out from the start in a, at least in a major outline sort of way. Where is your story gonna go? How is the continuity gonna work? How is it gonna make sense all the way through? And we see it fail in something like the new Star Wars trilogy because you have different directors and different creative forces taking on these characters and shifting the direction of the story based on fan reaction or based on you know whatever's happened after one is completed. So it's not one big cohesive narrative that was put together and then one person that went out to make said cohesive narrative, right? And that is so different than what we see here, because everything about the League of Shadows being introduced is exactly what the plot of The Dark Knight Rises is all about. Like, it comes full circle, and it is the the main theme. There's a lot going on in that movie, but that is the underlying whole purpose of what Bane is out to do, is to finish what the League of Shadows started. And without introducing Roz, you don't get Talia... Coming back for vengeance, right, and so it is you can't evaluate the movie only on its own terms, even though it's phenomenal to watch individually, but you have to also look at it in as part of the whole, and as part of the whole, it fits like a perfect puzzle piece, as we were saying well, during his final acceptance into the League of Shadows, Roz tells Bruce, Your compassion is a weakness your enemies will not share, which I thought is a very strong line and piece of advice. And Bruce responds by saying, that's why it's so important. It separates us from them. I wondered what you thought about this, because this is going to set the tone for the Batman that we're going to get. How does this theme of compassion show up in the film? And how does it shape him into the Batman who we all knew at this point as a Batman who doesn't kill? And... Well, I want to ask you, I don't want you to start with this, but I also want to know what you think about the end of the film, because at the end of the film, Bruce's last words to Roz as the train is about to plummet and explode are, I won't kill you, but I don't have to save you. So I want to know if you feel like there's any conflict in that with this compassion that Bruce is saying he wants to show. And then also just how does this movie like set that character up for how he's going to act going forward?
0: Well, I think that last line is brilliant. And I think it's it really does summarize who Batman is. He is not a... He sees justice in a way that has consequences, that he's okay with living with. And if you compare him traditionally to a character like Superman, Superman is one who would, because he's superpowered, has the ability to stop things before they happen. Whereas Batman kind of lives in this area where he recognizes that he cannot save the whole world, but he will do within his means, whatever it takes to save the ones, whether it's the people of Gotham, whether it's Rachel, whether it's Harvey Dent, whatever it takes to save those. And his idea of vengeance is individualized in a lot of ways. He is not a character, and this this to answer your question, I think this is what Batman Begins does, is it amplifies the fact that he is not a savior. He is a vigilante. He is one who chooses who to save and how to save them. And he's not a character that I would think would surprise me if he did kill. I don't think he murders. I think that if the output of his actions toward Raz Agul were that Raz dies, that's consistent with his character because I don't see him as one who is out to be the savior of a people or savior of a city. He's out to restore. He's out to provide assistance. And in some ways, he's like a glorified cop, only he's got a lot more intimidation behind him and so i think what that does especially setting up for the second and third entry is he's challenged by those things not about killing or not killing but about who to save and i think that's what makes the choices that he has to make and how they amplify to the people of gotham in that instance so impactful because it reminds us and i think he is a character in this trilogy reminds us that as people We always have a choice we have to make, and sometimes that choice might be good for someone but bad for someone else, and we can't do the right thing for everyone. This is – it got me thinking when I was – when you asked that question, I started thinking about democracy and how on paper it looks like a great thing. The people get to vote for what they want. Sure, but the majority of people win. So if the majority of people – using a really bad scenario – if the majority of people say if you speed, you get stabbed in the arm. <laughs> you get pulled over for speed and you get stabbed in the arm. Wow, that's not fair. That seems like a pretty crazy consequence to going over the speed limit. But if the majority of people voted on it, that's what the people are going to do or that's what we're going to do. That's not keeping everyone's best interests at heart. That's keeping the majority of people's best interests at heart, or at least those who voted for that. So looking at Batman as a character, what we see is someone who always has to make a choice. And we're reminded that in the world of Gotham, metaphorically speaking and literally, people are going to die. Innocent people will die. So will guilty people. There will always be consequences because of a choice that he makes, just like there will always be consequences to choices that we make. And not everybody is going to come out of this in a good way. And Batman begins allows us to sit with that for a little while. And it sure as heck challenges us in the second entry on the choices that we make and what's actually right or wrong.
1: Yeah, so that was where I was going to go, was the fact that it is progressive in this series, and it's a theme that continues and changes in how Bruce handles this. And it, it makes me think about how this event affects him To get him to the point where when this same very similar scenario is taking place at the end of the Dark Knight with the Joker, he saves him. And the Joker is just hilariously laughing at him saying, you can't let me die. You can't let me go. You have to save me. And it makes me wonder like what the effect of letting Roz die has on Bruce, because what happens at the end of this film? We have Gordon standing there at the bat signal talking to Batman saying we can expect escalation and that's exactly what comes and so you wonder like how that is going to play out and so the Joker's taking advantage of Batman having rules and here it's interesting because he seemingly doesn't and I think maybe the key for me is that Batman does not put Roz in the position to die. He doesn't actively do something that is intentionally going to lead to his death. It's a last moment where he can save someone or not save them, but he didn't put them in the position to need saving is where I'm going with that. And so he chooses not to. But I do think it, is at times at conflict with what he is presuming to champion and with what he says about showing compassion. It's not in line with what he presumes to be all about. And I think that that's fascinating. And I think that's interesting because it makes him complex. It doesn't make him perfect. Uh, and, And it makes him, it makes me question him at all points. Like, is he able to turn that on turn that off when he wants to but it makes him human too Patrick because you have to struggle with that right you have to struggle and Alfred calls him out on it at one point in the film he says you can't make it personal like it can't be personal but it's personal with Roz in the most personal of ways right more personal than it ever is with the Joker I would say mm-hmm. because yeah the Joker wasn't his mentor <laughs> you know and the Joker and, and it's just a very different relationship. So, yeah, I find it really intriguing. Um And it's always a great point of debate with people who say, oh, well, Batman doesn't kill. Well, is it killing to not save? You know, who knows? It's I could go either way at times.
0: Yeah, I, I would probably take that one step further and say, if you're going to make that argument, you could probably say that Batman doesn't murder because murder implies intent. <sighs>
1: That's a great way to put it. Yes.
0: And I I think that that he has, and I think he has the benefit as Bruce Wayne to play in that sandbox of morality because Bruce as another part of this complex character has the opportunity and has the means to be able to save people from financial trouble or build, you know, to build buildings and to create foundations and things like that. The opposite end of that is what Bruce can't do, Batman will fill in the gaps and take care of. He's the dirty side of Gotham, whereas Bruce is the corporate clean side. And it it makes it fun to watch both of those characters in the same space. And I think part of what makes Nolan's trilogy so fantastic is that, for me, there is a distinction between Batman and Bruce Wayne. I see two different characters being portrayed and you know that's that's a testament to christian bale to be able to kind of put on both of those personas and play them distinctly and to me i think that's doing the character justice because as i said before bruce wayne is equally as important as batman
1: well also equally important to bruce are the relationships that define him and the people that are actually close to him of which there are never many and in this film, we get to meet, I would say, three people that significantly affect his development as he becomes Batman and shifts his personas here. One being Rachel uh Dawes, the assistant DA and girlfriend, or I guess wannabe girlfriend. She never really is his girlfriend. She's his childhood friend. It just never quite gets there because, oh man, he just can't let it. And then <laughs> Alfred, of course who's been there. And as we talked about offline, one of his most sassy roles uh, as the character, he is just spitting lines at Bruce constantly in this one, um, and just taking no crap from him at all, which is amazing. And then the introduction of Lucius Fox, who becomes his head honcho of tech and ultimately has a fun little arc of getting to be in charge of Wayne Enterprises. He's the cue of the Batman world, the Batverse. <laughs> so through these relationships, we get to see Bruce and Batman interact with these characters. And I just wondered how that worked for you. So two big questions that come to me in this movie. One is important in any iteration of Batman that we're going to talk about, which is how does the actor manage portraying both Bruce Wayne and Batman? And how do you feel about Christian Bale in this particular film? And then also, I'm just curious for you, who's the better Rachel Dawes? Is it Katie Holmes in Batman Begins or is it Maggie Gyllenhaal in The Dark Knight?
0: Well, to answer your first question, this is where, I, as I like seeing Christian Bale in these dual roles, there were moments as Batman that felt borderline campy not enough to throw me off but I've said in different conversations on Facebook and in different social circles that I think Christian Bale is my favorite Bruce because of how Nolan treats that side of Batman he's not my favorite Batman and I think it's his delivery uh, particularly how it kind of gets a little bit more raspy as the series goes on But it doesn't negate the performance that he gives. And again, to have two distinct characters living within one actor in this performance, I think is pretty fantastic. So I I still like as a whole, I think this is my favorite Batman entry. Because of that nice balance. When it comes to Rachel Dawes, I was thinking about this, watching this and I'm going. I would much rather see Katie Holmes as rachel dawes but i think maggie gyllenhaal makes the role work for me particularly in the dark night her relationship with bruce and how it evolves in the dark night she has more screen time she feels more significant her relationship with harvey dent maggie gyllenhaal's performance sells it for me even though i think i prefer katie holmes in terms of what I got first if I saw Katie Holmes in the dark night then I would have probably been fine with that but I think Maggie Gyllenhaal sells the character of Rachel Dawes more for me than than Katie Holmes does
1: I'm sad that you wait wait did you say Rachel Dawes wait sorry I got my names mixed up you say Maggie Gyllenhaal sells it more than Katie Holmes does
0: right for me for me she does yeah okay
1: yeah Um, so I think it's almost like a Batman and Bruce Wayne issue for me. I vastly prefer Katie Holmes as the love interest, as the best friend, person who knows Bruce and potentially could be a romantic partner. And the scenes in which she is with him and talking to him, and especially there at the very end when she utters that line that you mentioned where she tells him, listen, you're you're not Bruce Wayne. Bruce Wayne is the mask and this is Batman. And I can't like this is you've chosen this. And he says, well, hopefully one day I'll be able to come back to you. Right. Without it on. And I also am biased because I grew up like being in love with Katie Holmes. So I can't help it. But I think that she makes the better love interest anyway. I do think that. Maggie Gyllenhaal makes the stronger DA assistant DA character. She feels just more like that. I don't know how to put it, but she just has this gravitas about her that Katie Holmes doesn't really carry. I don't dislike her as Rachel Dawes though at all in this film. I've heard people talk about like how much it just she ruins the whole movie for them, and I think that that's insane. Like I think she's perfectly serviceable. In fact, I really actually enjoy when she comes at Scarecrow and she like reads him the riot act and she's like, no, I'm not leaving. Like, let's go right now We're I'm coming in, you know, and obviously it doesn't go well for her character, but I am sold on her attitude in that moment. There are just a couple of scenes where her delivery feels like, yeah, you'd probably get chewed up and spit out by this Gotham crowd.
0: Yeah. So Katie Holmes is a softer Rachel. Maggie sells that DA character trait. Like, she just feels tougher. Maggie Gyllenhaal does. And why shouldn't she? She has a brother named Jake, and he's amazing in the things that he is a performer in. But Katie Holmes, the softer moments with Bruce, she sells it more than Maggie does because of the fact that she just comes across in that softer way. And Aaron, that moment that you spoke of when she gets right in Scarecrow's face. When he takes her down before she, you know, gets her comeuppance, <laughs> she runs away, and I'm like, that would be what a Katie Holmes Rachel would do. I don't think Maggie Gyllenhaal would do that. I think she would just continue to just push and push and push and get the same consequence. And so it's hard to it's hard to kind of separate. Like I I want to blend them both. Like I want a softer physical appearance of Katie Holmes because that's part of who Rachel is. But I also need a tough DA, which is what Maggie Gyllenhaal brings to the table. And so they both have their strengths and weaknesses. I kind of wish you could just combine them into like somebody else completely that could sell both of those sides.
1: Yeah, I guess that's fair. That's that's fair. Um, And then for me, the other one is that I love Bruce. Sorry, Bale. (laughs) I love Bruce's Bale. I love Bale as Bruce and as Batman there was one thing that sort of, I guess, I wouldn't call it a, even a nitpick really, but that stuck out to me was that his vocalization as Batman in this movie, it starts off normal voice. And then at one point, like pretty early on, you can, he goes through two different iterations of trying to growl and mask his voice. And then towards the end, when he's interacting with Rachel, He is just completely talking as himself. And the same thing happens when he talks to Gordon later on. He just he's literally just Bruce in his voice. It doesn't change at all. And I have chosen to allow myself to write that off as a man who is not comfortable yet in his persona and doesn't understand fully that he needs to mask his voice. But it probably is just an inconsistency in the acting performance that should have been corrected Because it's an obvious thing, right? And if you're going to give us an example in the middle of a film of him masking his voice by going the deep growly one, it's kind of bad to then go back to just normal Bruce voice because it's hard to believe that would happen.
0: Well, and yeah, I think that really kind of gets amplified when we watch The Dark Knight. And he, in my opinion, overindulges that, that rough voice, which has become a meme. Why do you want to kill me? You know, just... It's just it's very comic book is comic bookish, which, yes, it's based off of a comic book character. But I imagine that's a difficult thing to do to have to create a persona where your voice has to be distinctly different in as much as the costume that you wear. And you know what? Look, if we look back at iterations prior to that, we don't see a lot of vocal change in our Batman with the Tim Burton and the Schumacher iteration. It's just deeper and a little bit more monotone in some ways. It's entertaining to hear Christian Bale with that voice. And I, you know, I give him kudos for, for doing that. It's, uh, yeah, you know, I'll, I'll side with you in saying it's just an idiosyncrasy and the fact that Bruce is getting used to being the Bat, and he finally comes into his own by the second entry. (laughs) But for my money, I think I I wanted a little bit less raspy and a little bit more monotone.
1: Fair enough. Well, another big thing about Batman is the tech. Uh, He always has fun gadgets and cool toys, and we get to see some of those here as they are developing. So I wonder what stuck out to you as being particularly effective
0: well, nothing in particular was like, wow, besides the tumbler, I mean, that's just amazing. Okay. I was like, was about,
1: I was about, that sentence was going in the wrong direction for a second. I was like, what do you mean? There's the Tumblr.
0: Black? But as a, as a whole, the way in which he gets the tech, the way in which these things are justified, coming from Wayne Industries and Lucius explaining, yeah, this is for that. And, you know, we see the suit, and we're like, "Oh, it's the Bat suit." Oh no, it wasn't the Bat suit. It was actually going to be a high grade polymer for military training. And then the 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 cape. You know, I'm I'm walking through this the first time I'm seeing this, and I'm like, "Okay, how are you going to explain the cape?" You know, whatever. And sure enough, this amazing kind of fabric that gets you know electrified or gets like molecules you know straightening out to make it go flap in the wind. What I loved about that whole sequence is the fact that everything felt like it could exist. It's kind of that fringe science kind of stuff. And that would have been a hard sell to keep a movie grounded for me is you have this grounded character, you have all this great stuff, and then what you have is all this tech that you're like, "Oh yeah, now we're getting into crazy superhero stuff." No, you're not. All this stuff could legitimately exist, albeit it's more amplified and I think it's good that it's amplified because it allows us to kind of suspend our disbelief a little bit. So the tech as a whole, I think was pretty amazing because of the fact that not only did I think it was cool, but I wanted one of everything that he was getting personally.
1: Yeah, I'm with you there. And I, and I love the grounded nature of it, the realism, the fact that it's military, high grade military tech that is just being repurposed. There's this one awesome shot when he's in the back cave, like. Testing things out and it's it's got he's got these like long fingers
0: yeah for the cape with the, for the yeah, cape the
1: street, right yeah. testing the t- it, it's so it's just that the way that we get to see it visualized mm-hmm. i think is what makes it all the more cool because yeah. you could tell us these things right Lucius fox can spout off the fancy words but then when you see it you're just like oh that's epic but we also get to see a motorized grapple gun which is a staple in batman's arsenal especially going back to the Keaton days you know something he would wear you know on his belt and we get to see a scene where he uses that on one of the thugs in Gotham uh, one of the corrupt cops and then we get to see him using an extreme listening tech which is really great and I'll also come back to that a bit uh, in my connecting point but that's a fun piece of tech that is not always dealt with that really speaks to that detective nature of Batman where he is outside this warehouse but he can hear what's going on inside because he's got some super duper listening tool in order to do that and the tumbler man is just the tumbler is so cool i mean i'm sorry but it's phenomenal and it gets a lot of action here gordon gets to drive it in a really fun scene and way uh batman has some awesome uh you know moments with it i love seeing him swing into the waterfall for the first time and discover the Batcave. I I like getting to see the Batcave's, like, creation from the ground up. Like, it's not super fancy yet. You know what I mean? It's just kind of a cave at this point. And it's not until the end of the film when the house is burned down and he's like, oh, we're just going to, we're going to build it back just like it was. And Alfred's like, well, I thought maybe we could do some remodeling, <laughs> you know? um, And yeah, that's a good idea. We could build the Batcave up. And so you realize that that's coming. So I, I like the tech. I think it's a great tease for some of the things we then get to see in The Dark night. Because again, that's what a trilogy should do. It should give you some good stuff, but it should also whet your appetite for what could the next Batman that we see who's got some time under his belt, who's been able to rebuild the bat cave and, you know, gotten stronger and had this new tech developed. Like what could he use? And we get to see even neater things come into play. Um, Even the way that scarecrows plan the tech, it's not Batman's tech, but the thing that they were going to use in order to get the fear toxin out, I thought was brilliant. That was just such a cool idea and concept right you put this toxin you put this toxin in the water supply and it does nothing and then you use this mass evaporator to all of a sudden zap up all the water and then boom your toxins everywhere just such a such an awesome idea in my opinion The last thing I want to talk about for connecting points was really just, I I really just kind of wondered if you noticed this. So I watched this movie twice in the past week and a half for the podcast, because I'd already watched it for fun and then we decided to cover it. So I watched it again. And so something that stuck out to me big time was the score. Not only is Hans Zimmer part of this score, but this is the one film in the trilogy that had James Newton Howard And his influence helping. And then there are also contributions by other great composers that I was unaware of until I looked this up. Ramin Djawadi, who is famous for Game of Thrones music. Uh, Lorne Balfe, who is of his own right, like amazing. And then Mel Wesson. And so what I noticed was, especially through, I would say, the first hour section of this film, the Bruce section before he becomes Batman. I don't know if you noticed, but there's almost no time where the score is not there. And it stuck out like a sore thumb to me. Oh, I guess not a sore thumb because the sore thumb hurts. And this is amazing. But I just realized that it is always there. There is an undercurrent. And what it was doing to me, Patrick, was it was definitely enhancing my emotional connection and my, you know, The way that I was interacting with the film, the rise and the fall of the music, the constant hum in the background or the thumping nature as things were about to pick up, it truly doesn't take many scenes off in this entire film. And I find that to be an incredibly positive thing. It's one of the things I like about this movie the most. And one of the things I like about this trilogy the most is the music. It fits perfectly and it's always there you don't have long sections where it's just people talking you get this background theme that's kind of just always reminding you what's happening and and I loved it so I I don't know if it did stick out did you notice it at all or am I just crazy
0: you're not crazy but it didn't stick out to me like it did you and some of that has to do with the fact that you've watched this trilogy once recently and then this entry twice What I will say is that it doesn't detract by any means. I didn't feel like when I heard it, I thought, that doesn't really work. And I'm always going to be a fan of the less is more approach where the music enhances moments as opposed to being part of the background. But I will say that when you have somebody like Hans Zimmer and James Newton Howard kind of steering the ship there, I didn't notice anything that was glaring in terms of like, this could have worked better without music. I think as a whole, Batman Begins is in some ways reminiscent of The Fast and the Furious, where you have a lot of action and small pockets of conversation, like the moment with Bruce and Alfred on the plane coming back into Gotham. Those moments I gravitate towards because I like that by my own nature. I just like those small conversations. And I think those are probably the moments that don't have a lot of music. And so it makes sense that what you noticed was what the majority of the film was about, which is a lot of high action, a lot of sweeping motions. And some of the things that stood out to me were the sound editing and the sound mixing of the sneak attacks that Batman would have on some of his victims per se and how you'd hear a a thud but not just a thud but like a crack here and there and so you got to try to translate what was actually happening and for me that kind of made my heart amplify a little bit because I was like oh my gosh what's gonna happen am I in this room with him he's gonna he's gonna take me down I didn't steal it I promise I didn't steal anything but I think overall the sound As a whole, with the soundtrack and the the editing itself, helped give that action and drama mix its power for uh, the majority of the movie.
1: Well, good. I'm glad that you noticed the sound editing because I too did, and I think that it's part of just the constant sound that we get in this film series. I mean, Christopher Nolan's known for being loud, it's just a thing, and it really works for me in this particular trilogy. In a big, big way. Well, let's get into our connecting points. And I'm going to be the gentleman here, because I'm Batman, and let you go first.
0: (laughs) Well, for me, rarely does it come down to a moment or a shot. And this is one of those times when it came down to a moment, a shot. And it was the moment that Bruce goes down into the cave. And the bats just completely surround him. And what Nolan does here from a cinematic standpoint, cinematography standpoint, and using the music, as you mentioned, is he reminds us that the fear we have for something doesn't go away. And that's not what we don't conquer a fear by it going away. We conquer a fear by looking at it head on. And that metaphor lives throughout the the whole story. But seeing this moment where Bruce is crouched over and then he slowly kind of stands up and this sea of bats just circle around him visualize for me a man who is recognizing his fear, acknowledging it, but recognizing it as a strength and not a weakness. And I'm not sure if that's the moment when he realizes that's who he's going to be. I think it is, but it's a very iconic shot, but it has so much weight behind it from an emotional standpoint, because it's his way of just confirming I am choosing to do this. He's not having greatness thrust upon him as Bruce Wayne. No, he's choosing to embrace that and, Use the fear that still exists in him for bats to become the symbol of those that need to fear. (laughs) And so I think on multiple levels, watching that one moment, it made me smile. I thought it was a fantastic technical shot, but I think it spoke volumes about the moment that Bruce decided to embrace that alter ego that in a sense, was the other half of what he was missing that made him a complete character, a complete person, and that became Batman.
1: I love it. I really do. That is perfect. and It's a excellent compliment to my connecting point because while yours is a single shot, I'm going to raise you like a 15-minute section of the film. <laughs> <laughs> so I started writing down my connecting point, and I was like, oh, man, I really love this Scarecrow's facility attack. And then the scene kept going, and I was like, "I but I like this part, too. And I just kept taking notes, and I was like, (laughs) you know what? Forget it. Like, this whole thing is my favorite part of the movie. I'm going to say the main reason why is the overarching feel that I get from this, and it starts with Batman listening in from the outside. I talked about that tech earlier is it reminds me so much of the Arkham Asylum and Arkham City and Arkham Knight game series. And it's no surprise because Nolan's Trilogy did get inspiration from that series. And there's a reason why I love both. And they do inspire each other perfectly at times. And it's just Batman being epic Batman. It might be my favorite like just snapshot of a Batman moment because it starts with him doing the infiltration out. He's listening outside and we see crane in there and he's got Rachel captured and all of a sudden the lights go out and it's that classic moment in a Batman movie. And everyone standing around starts freaking out and looking at the ceiling and crane is looking up and he's like, it's the Batman, right? Right. And the, the way that his goons are reacting, they're like, they say he can fly and they say he can do this. And Crane's like, well, we're going to find out. There's almost like a giddiness to the villain, right? Who's like, all right, let's, let's see what you're all about, right? I beat you once. What's it going to be? And we get that amazing epic moment of him swooping down in shadow from the darkness, grabbing a guy and whooshing out of frame with the guy in his arms and we hear the scream the, Ah, as it drowns away right drowns out and it's just it's epic it's batman he pulls him into the rafters and then he comes and he drops down in the darkness surprises him and goes into this again arkham asylum moment of hand-to-hand combat against like three or four dudes and he's just perfectly countering everything they're doing taking them all down beating them up it's beautiful culminates With him grabbing Scarecrow's arm, shooting Scarecrow with his own fear toxin, and becoming super scary evil Donnie Darko rabbit Batman. And that visual is ingrained in my brain. It is terrifying, Patrick. It is terrifying. I mean, it looks like a peep came to life. It was like a burned peep came to life. And got gigantic and came to eat you or something. It's awful, right? But it's just a brilliant way to have him beat scarecrow with his own medicine literally and the cops come after him another great batman theme where he's in here doing the dirty work for them and their first thought is well we got to take this guy down this vigilante right which is again a running theme through batman's lore so this all kind of culminates in this moment And he ends up trying to escape, so he has to run and escape down this staircase, and what does he do? He uses another piece of tech, and he calls the bats, and this humongous cloud of bats comes down the street and uses themselves to stealthily conceal him from the cops, so he can get into his tumbler and get out of there at one point he uses another piece of tech all these things i couldn't mention this little like tiny little mine it looks like it's from minesweeper but he like puts it on the door and it like blows open the door so he can get out brilliant stuff and this is the moment where it pays off later because he comes zipping through the cops in the tumbler and jim sees it and he's like i gotta get me one of those just awesome patrick from start to finish we get the the grounded fight and then we get him in the tumbler and he's driving off into the night and we get the cops chasing him. We get amazing humor. The, the Batman type of humor is when the cops are chasing him and you know, he zips by and the cops are like talking about what he's, what he's in. And one guy's like, he's in a black tank and they don't know what it is. It's awesome. He gets cornered on the roof, right? Ends up driving the Batmobile over the rooftops through some pillars. While the cops are chasing him and all the while he has Rachel in the Batmobile who is like dying from this toxin and he needs to save her and get to an antidote. It is, for my money, like the first fully incredible Batman live action experience that I had had up until that point. And it it holds up today, even with the ones we've had after, but nothing in Keaton's films or... The Batman Forever and Batman and Robin Shoemaker runs. None of it holds up to like this section of the film for me. Like this is when I was like, okay, when Batman's gonna be Batman, it's gonna look like this, and I am all the way here for it. So I am just giddy and excited throughout this whole section. I love it so much. I can watch it on repeat, and that's why it's what I connect to the most.
0: And Dominic Toretto would have been very proud to be. A oh, part he of would that. have.
1: Oh, absolutely.
0: <laughs> well, that'll wrap up this episode of Feeling Film. We hope you guys have enjoyed listening. We'll continue down the road with the Cape Crusader next week by completing our Nolan Batman trilogy with our conversation of The Dark Knight Rises. Uh, if you're kind of confused and wondering why we're skipping The Dark Knight, clearly you have not been listening to the show long enough. But you can wet your whistle and get caught up with the trilogy by listening to our conversation on The Dark Knight episode 42 of the podcast so you
1: were close you said it was around 50 and earlier in the show so you were you were almost there
0: early in the feeling film days but a very good run of movies for us as we celebrated our favorite director christopher nolan and that being one of them so enjoy that this week as you wait for our next episode to drop and uh, aaron thanks for another great conversation man and we'll talk soon
1: hey everyone thanks again for listening very active
0: in both places and would love to chat and if you want to connect with me you can find me at shoeless patch on both facebook and twitter be sure to tag me in any comments so that i'll be notified and not miss you
1: once again thank you for listening we'll be back soon until then stay positive
0: and keep feeling filmed.